the first thing I uh, recorded recently in this new setup, I did all this tracking and didn't hit record. Like, I had just totally forgotten. Like, since I had the babies, it was like, <laughs> like, what is record button? Like, I'll just sit here talking. <laughs> so I'm recording now. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. Every mother works now more than ever, and we're back for another great season of challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. And we are in no danger of running out of material. 2020, what a mother. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. Things have been wild since our last season in more ways than one. I gave birth to twins along with already having a preschool age son. And just as our family was figuring out how to adjust to being a family of five with two tiny newborns, the pandemic hit. We are now many months into this crisis. And in this moment, as I stare down the ongoing and devastating fallout of COVID for mothers and families, as the country confronts racism and police brutality with mass protest, and truly nothing feels predictable from childcare to the election to the Supreme Court, it's clear that the system is more broken than ever. And attempting to confront all this made me realize that I didn't want to take on this season alone. So I've asked one of our amazing guests from season two to join me. You may remember her from our finale. Let me jog your memory. Becoming a mother radicalized me in like a physical way. I just realized that we see it as such a culturally traditional act. But, you know, there's never any revolution without mothers and children. Motherhood is the place to break from our most oppressive traditions. And I think about the shit that I swallowed and the things that I dealt with throughout my life. And I don't want my daughters to have to deal with that. I'm Angela Garbez, and I'm co-host of season three of The Double Shift. Yep, Angela Garbez is going to co-host with me this season. Angela is a journalist and the author of the amazing book, Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. She is currently weathering the pandemic at her home in Seattle. Her husband has turned their uninsulated garage into an office so he can work. Her toddler is back in daycare, and her six-year-old has started virtual kindergarten at home. This season, Angela and I, amid the chaos and realness of our lives as working moms, are going to discuss some of the meatiest topics we're facing this year together. I'm less interested in rage and anger as just a thing. What I want to do is figure out a way to channel that into something useful. This is season three of The Double Shift. Welcome back. Before Angela and I dive into conversations this season with guests about activism, the childcare crisis, racial injustice, and more, we wanted to check in about how things are going in each of our respective home lives, because how could we not? I know for so many moms, it can feel like an hour-by-hour minute-by-minute evaluation if we are surviving at all. And I always want to know what other people's home lives are like during this chaos. 
So here's how things are at Angela's house these days. I don't totally understand the shape of our family and our schedule yet, and I definitely don't understand how exactly I work. <laughs> I've been experimenting with, um, I mean, I've been experimenting with waking up a full hour to hour and a half earlier than I would like, you know, between 5.30 and 6, to see if I can become a morning person or to see if I can just have an hour of sustained, quiet thinking how are you? I mean, you have triple the amount of children that you had <laughs> when you started doing the double shift. And are they home with you part of the time, all of the time? What What does your life look like? So there's been constant negotiations and renegotiations around our childcare situation. We have full-time care for the twins, which is at home, which is like incredibly crucial. And then... We're doing virtual kindergarten, quote, in our free time. Of which there are copious and amounts of. Of which there's so much, given that we have infant twins and are both working a lot. And we're sending him back to an in-person preschool. So he's out of the house during the day. And then we're working on his sight words uh -huh. and stuff on our own. So this is like a ridiculous situation, but basically the most workable out of a lot of unworkable situations. And um, yeah, we're, you know, we're spending more than a mortgage on childcare right now in terms of the cost. Yeah. And that's just the only way that I could be working. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was our, that was the situation we were in when we had both girls in full-time childcare in the before times. Yeah. Our childcare costs were far more than our mortgage. Yeah. And I have been praying for kindergarten <laughs> for three years because this is like financially I've public school is our quality of life is contingent upon this. And so now I mean it's shows that she's in public school, but of course that means I'm reorienting my working life right. around that. And my husband is as well. But it feels like there's no great choices. Or we're just I don't know, you just make a choice yeah, and go. No, no. <laughs> the option of great choices were is like far we're far past that. I mean, there's the there's like only like mediocre to terrible choices left, I think. But this sort of precarity, I guess, is also one of the things I was actually really nervous about getting started on a third season. Like for a for a lot of time this summer, I was like, we're just not gonna come back till 2021. Like I can't get it together to come back before that, it's going to be too hard and I'm going to not be able to do a good job because what happens if school closes or what happens if like we all think we have COVID and like we can't go anywhere for weeks and then I can't work. And that really scared me in terms of putting out a product like the double shift I take so seriously. And it's like, what if I can't hit my deadlines? What if I am letting people down? Like that kind of stepping out in that public way, like felt really vulnerable in some ways to say, like, we're going to release on this schedule. And then what happens if I fail at that? Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I was like, I just don't think we can even do a season this year. But then I sort of started to come around a little bit to feel like maybe we I can try to do something a little different in this moment. And that's one of the reasons I invited you to co-host with me was the idea that we could have different kinds of conversations. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm struck by this idea that you don't want to let people down or that you feel, it would feel like a failure, which I think is such a hard, I mean, I think that's that's real, obviously, but it like hurts me to hear you say that because it's very much like, I don't know, I, I just feel like that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Right. And to me, what's interesting about doing 
a season this way, right? Is like so you're letting go of this idea of what it was, which I think is important. We're, there's a lot of letting go and submission yes. involved in this time in our life, but I think it's really interesting to think about making something that's a product of this time. Yes. That reflects all of that precarity, that reflects that things are totally in flux. I mean, for us to do this stuff, I'm thinking about how, like, today is dependent on, we have a babysitter who comes on Mondays. Tuesday through Thursday, afternoons are playdates with the one family that we've sort of, you know, attached to. And then Fridays are a day where my daughter will probably go to kindergarten with my mother at her house. And so that you know, that relies on her staying well, right? So there's, but any of those things, that's, that's like three outside things that I'm dependent on. I mean, I just think it's really important to make, to make, I don't want to say content, that's such a gross word, <laughs> but to create things, right? And to do our work that reflects what's happening now, because I've spent a lot of time feeling really sad and really kind of grieving and and mourning the fact that if if we don't do this, then there's basically just a year where we're not hearing from moms. Right. We're all kind of disappearing into home life. And so we don't get, you know, we don't get things like the research that mothers contribute. We don't get the art that mothers contribute. We don't get the the joy and the fun and the creativity that is that's just part of what we do. And so I think it's really I'm really happy to be part of this because it's you know, it's almost like a time capsule of now. Whatever happens, right? It feels real and true. It's not about being perfect. It's about showing up. Yeah. And so that's what I would want to wish for any mother. So I don't know why it's so hard to wish it for myself, you know? It is so... <laughs> this is a thing, like, people, you know, after I published my book and I was doing more events, people would always be like, what kind, What advice do you give to mothers? And I hate advice. <laughs> I don't like giving it. That's why we like each other, because we both hate advice. <laughs> but the one thing that I would settle on, because people really, you get, I would always get asked the question, and the one piece of advice that I do give to people is to try and be as generous with yourself as you would be with other people. Yeah. So, I don't know, it feels like it, it lands here, too, so... I also think about, like, what would I tell someone else who had just had twins in the middle of a pandemic, like, about their creative output mm -hmm. or their professional success or whether or not their clothes were fitting right or any of those other, like, life things that we are hard on ourselves about. So, yeah. but I want to turn the tables on you, Angela, and ask you, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to come be a co-host of The Double Shift uh, during this time. Yeah, I mean, having no experience with podcasting. <laughs> yeah, I have, to be totally honest, I've had a really hard time working and been feeling really overwhelmed by that, by some feelings of guilt and some feelings of uselessness. You know, I, I don't like those feelings, but it's it's true. And I've been feeling really far in that overwhelm of domestic work and my own personal stuff and grief for the world. I've been feeling really far from issues that I care about. And when you sent me that email about doing it, my first thought was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I have no experience. But, you know, there was, there was a a line that jumped out to me that said, you know, we have similar values, but very different experiences. And I, it just, it jumped out to me in the moment. And the more I thought about it, I was like, this is really important. I want to, I want to think about why this is hitting for me. And I realized, like, I want to be in conversation with someone with whom I share values. I, you know, it's true. I agreed wholeheartedly with what you said. And I was thinking about something that you said in the introduction, right, which is you said that the system is more broken than ever. And the way I think of that is, 
you know, the system isn't broken, actually. It's working exactly as it was designed Mm. from the beginning, which is, you know, to maintain supremacy of white, rich people at the expense of people of color and poor people. And that's that's what I fully believe, that that's what the system has always been designed to do. And I think that the pandemic has made that crystal clear. Yes. Undeniable to everyone. And I know we talked about this when I was a guest last season. Yes. But, you know, I grew up in a small, mostly white town. My parents are immigrants. I'm a woman of color. I'm Filipina. And I knew very, very early on that the world wasn't meant for me, (laughs) right? I grew up with this feeling that this, the world was not, systems were not designed for me to feel at home or comfortable or to thrive, right? And um, so I never assumed that systems were going to work for me, and it's not a surprise to me that they don't, right? I mean, I agree that, right, it's the, there's a problem with the system, but I think we land at the same place, but the sort of, the way we would think to frame that, which I think has a lot to do with, you know, like, I think race is involved in that, but I think that that's just a, it's just a different perspective that I... I want to be able to talk about that and know that, you know, we're not going to be defensive about that. Like, this is, let's acknowledge the differences and let's start from the place of where we align and where can we push from that and what can we discover. Yeah. No, I think that these are such salient points. And I think as I think about that framing, I'm thinking about all of the different privileges and advantages that I've had in my life. And I'm thinking about how there's a, the sort of sense that that maybe even though I've been doing so much work on how we need to, you know, the whole last season was about challenging the nuclear family and ideas about, you know, the American dream. It clearly doesn't work. It's clearly a myth. And as I do all this intellectual work, I still am seeing that I'm holding on to these remnants that, like, maybe there is still something to this idea that, you know, anybody can make it in America, even though intellectually I don't think that's true anymore. But somehow that's been so deeply ingrained in me in this, like, belief of this meritocracy or that there's good intentions behind the way that our society runs uh, is run. But all evidence points to that not being true. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> I mean, I think that's interesting, right? The things that you kind yeah. of default say, you know, and like, I'm not without my own, let me just say too, like, I'm a person of color, but, you know, I grew up with a certain amount of economic privilege. And that's something that I have been confronting more and more. Um, and then also, you know, in this particular time too, with all of the protests that are happening this summer, I, I've been reckoning a lot with, you know, I'm a person of color, but I'm a non-Black person of color, right? So what are the privileges that I have in that as an Asian American person? Like, I can kind of align here and there where it feels safer to be. Um, and also, you know, thinking about my own internalized whiteness, like I think about my standards of success and and the idea of what is good, like, there's a lot for me to undo there as well. I don't know. And that's the thing. Again, I feel like I'm I'm lonely. I miss people. <laughs> I miss friends. But I also think about the people that I am talking to are mostly people. I mean, I have a diverse group of friends, but we're not getting into this stuff, right? And I, I really miss having conversations with people who are different from me. <laughs> but I like this space because it's, we are different from each other, but there's this good intent. There's this, the values are the same. And I think we, we want the same things. And now let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. 
So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. As I was thinking about what I wanted to cover in this season of The Double Shift, a theme I kept coming back to was rage. I've been feeling a lot of rage these past months, and I know many mothers are tapping into whole new levels of rage right now. Senior producer Rachel McCarthy and I have been sending each other voice memos back and forth these last months, documenting what our lives as working moms have been like during COVID and releasing these as experimental episodes for members of The Double Shift. At one point back in the summer, it felt like the entire world was freaking out about school and daycare reopenings and the ethics of pods. Conversations in that moment were all about if it was too irresponsible during the pandemic to have any paid or outside childcare at all. 
There was a constant battle about who was putting the need to work above children's safety and who was putting fear ahead of data with tons of unrestrained vitriol, mostly aimed at mothers and our impossible choices. I vented some of my frustrations in this voice memo I sent to Rachel while I was taking a walk one day. Let's take a listen, and then we'll hear from co-host Angela Garbez. This whole thing could just be one long, primal scream of fuck, honestly. Like, since when is using private daycare immoral? Like, we all have to figure out what we can do to survive. People are going to have to quit their jobs. People are going to have to pay someone to watch their kids. People are going to have to make terrible economic decisions because society has completely abandoned us. So stop criticizing mothers. Criticize a goddamn politician or anyone with power in this country. Just over this. I've just been nodding along the entire time. <laughs> I kind of imagined that I was one of the birds squawking in the background, like, yep, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I was with you in that moment. Um, the thing that really jumps out to me, though, is, you know, this idea that private daycare is immoral. What's immoral is that there's not preschool that's guaranteed right? or affordable childcare that's guaranteed. And I think that that's, you know, in all of that, that's the thing that just rises to me. Like, to, it's such a succinct way of putting it. Like, since when is private daycare? Why is that immoral? Right? Like, that's a privilege that some people have, right, to be able to access that. But it's all private daycare is the standard. Right. In this country, until again, like me, living, literally living for public school until I can enroll my child there, right? I've had to pay. And what's immoral is that there's no good choices otherwise. Right. Right. That we've been abandoned, as you said, by our government and by our society. You're just supposed to figure this out. That's like one of the tenets of our culture, which American culture, which is figure out what to do until your kid is five or six. Right. It's all on you. Right. And I feel like. I mean, so many parents are so well aware of this reality before the pandemic, but we see it as a personal problem. Like, if we can just figure out this piece, or we can just get this slot, mm -hmm. or we can just work something out with grandma, or we can just, you know, as long as we can figure it out for ourselves, then it's it's okay, and our job is done. And plus, of course, so few of us have the bandwidth, it feels like, after we do that and then do our work to then start thinking, like, what is the larger thing that needs to be fixed here? But I feel like right now we're in a moment where even the most basic elements of our society that a year ago we could not have imagined going away, like all public school, basically, mm -hmm. is, a, is a time to really be motivated around everything that's broken, not just like, let's go back to the way things were, which were really actually pretty bad, but we'd sort of figure yeah, them me, there's out. there's no going back. Oh, no. Yes. There's no going back. And so I feel like right now I just want to, like, harness so much of the rage that people are feeling and talk about it as – I've been really interested in these ideas of guilt versus anger because you hear a lot about mom guilt, but I think anger is a very powerful motivator. It's, you know, people are protesting in the streets right now because they're angry, not because they feel guilty like they've done something wrong. They feel like they have righteous anger. And I think that it can be very powerful, but also it comes with all sorts of baggage and stereotypes like – there's a lot of stereotypes about angry Black women. There's a lot of cultural hesitancies in different groups about whether or not it's okay for women to show anger. And I'm seeing so much anger right now, but I feel like sometimes it's not directed 
in the right way. It's directed at each other. It's being angry at this other mother who has a nanny when you don't, or it's being angry that, you know, someone is making a different choice than you, or that you think is not being careful enough or is being too careful, or because we're all just so overwhelmed. And I just want to sort of I want to see the mothers of the world sort of uniting in the idea of turning the firing squad outward. Like, let's mm-hmm. aim it at the people with power who are making our lives like this, who have failed to get this virus under control, who've completely abandoned families in every way, rather than blaming it on our neighbors or the teacher who is bad at Zoom or, like, your school district who's bungling every part of reopening or, you know, XYZ daycare. Like, I just, that's the thing that. I want to sort of think about how we can refocus instead of blaming our communities, like really being effective with this feeling of anger. To just quickly add on to what you said, I do think that guilt is wasted, right? And I think that that's a deliberate thing. You know, when you talk about mommy wars, I hate using that phrase. It makes my mouth taste bad. But, you know, guilt is a thing that keeps people complacent and quiet, right? So I think that that's, so rejecting guilt is, I fully support that. And rage and anger, I have experienced so much of that and feel that. But I also am so aware of how much energy it takes to maintain and hold on to anger and rage. And I don't, I don't have a lot of that (laughs) these days, right? I only have, the way I say it is, I only have so, and this started actually when I had my second child. I was like, there's only so many fucks that I have in one day. (laughs) And sometimes they're gone at 10 a.m., right? Like, at 5 p.m., I don't have them, right, to, like, direct any other place or do anything with. Like, sometimes they're just all used up. And so that's something that I think about, right? And a book that I read during quarantine that got me thinking a lot more about rage um, called Minor Feelings, an Asian-American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. And I think, I mean, it's a book as an, as an Asian-American person that as I was reading it, I was like, I've, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to write this book. But the thing that I was so um, amazed by and just really respect in her work is that she, I was like, wow, this woman has taken rage. It is a, it's a central part to me of her, all of her writing and analysis. But what she's done is kind of, she's sharpened it into this tool that just eviscerates systems and eviscerates so much of our conventional thinking. And I was really inspired by that. And it, it picks up on what you were saying is I'm less interested in rage and anger as just a thing. What I want to do is figure out a way to channel that into something useful, right? And I think I looked also to the work of activists and mothers in the past who that's what people, this is survival. This is what people have been doing for decades, for centuries, right? And it doesn't necessarily look like anger and rage, right? Right. It can look like community building. It can be solution oriented, right? But it's I think it's an outgrowth of that. And I think the amount of energy and kind of fire and fuel that rage requires can be, you know, redirected and transformed. The same way that, you know, matter and energy never die, they're just transformed. That's kind of what I'm uh, interested in trying to do with rage. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And that also makes me think about how, you know, is rage in some ways a patriarchal response to the situation that we're in, in that, like, as you're saying, other cultures and other situations can use that energy that can be 
folded in around organizing and community building and helping neighbors and thinking creatively. And I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of times it's framed that the opposite of what we're living under right now is socialism. Like socialism is the is the antidote to our current situation. But actually, the opposite of what we're living under and the antidote to our current situation is matriarchy. Mm. <laughs> and I've been reading and studying matriarchy, and which is basically a, a pretty misunderstood philosophy because it's not about dominance over men as a reverse of patriarchy, but it's actually an egalitarian, uh-huh. non-hierarchical social order that centers the ability to bring forth life yeah. as the organizing principle of the community. So community good is paramount, mm-hmm. and then being nurturing and helping others are the most valued traits in a matriarchy, mm-hmm. as opposed to like dominance and decisions are consensus-based. And there are currently societies that are not maybe fully matriarchal as they have been historically, but have many elements of matriarchy still in them. And I feel like matriarchy is seen as a punchline, but I think it's like a, like a worldview that's worth serious like study and consideration right now. If like we want to talk about how to rebuild from this, mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, that's the most interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree. I think that there's the idea that, I mean, care and maintenance, right, nurturing, that we just don't value that as a society, right? We expect that work right. to be done for free, by mothers yeah. or at a very low cost by women of color, right? That's But that's the work that actually, that's what perpetuates society that allows us to keep growing. You know, and whether you call it matriarchy or not, I mean, that 100%, I, you know, I feel like it's not, not that it really matters, but it, like the term matriarchy could be like a hard sell to some people. <laughs> but I think the ideas behind it, right. right? Whatever you want to call it, I think there are a lot of people who believe in that, right. who maybe might even be uncomfortable with that name. But, you know, to back up a little bit, you know, like the idea of like rage being the response to patriarchy and matriarchy, you know, being the alternative, that's so powerful to me. I mean, I think about like no c- culture is as violent as we are, right? And we even celebrate like you're killing it, you're crushing it, you're right. slaying. Like the highest compliment that we can give people is is the language of violence, right, to what yeah. they're doing. And that's not – no, I mean, how do you switch – I mean, I would love to see that shift from language, right, of like – I don't know, it doesn't really quite have a ring to it right now, but like you're nurturing, right? Like, <laughs> but it's you're, that's like – You're I, growing I want, new life. <laughs> I want that shift. I want yeah. that shift. I mean that totally seriously, yeah. right? Like, I want us to have, I think we say those things without thinking about it. This season, Angela and I are committed to doing the show together during a tremendous amount of uncertainty in this country. Some of the season we're taping before the election and some we're taping after. And sometimes it feels like every day adds to the complexity of this time in all sorts of personal ways. After being stuck inside her house in Seattle because of wildfires, Angela doesn't want to face another four years of a president who won't take climate change seriously. I'm living in North Carolina, one of the most hotly contested swing states in the country, feeling a tremendous obligation to help people vote and protect our democracy. And... Angela and I have both been thinking about what it means to lose Ruth Bader Ginsburg during this particularly fraught time for mothers. I've been thinking about how the double shift is a descendant 
of her legacy in some ways because mm-hmm. not only was she at the top of her law class at Harvard with a toddler in the 1950s, which would be still rare now, but like then was completely unheard of. She knew that the first steps for equality for women was to be treated equally under the law. And But of course, we know that culture doesn't immediately change when laws change. And so much of what mothers are dealing with today involving pregnancy discrimination, being judges, being unable to be a good employee because you're a mother, all sorts of ways that we're held back in the workplace, that's the work of the double shift to sort of continue to fight for those culture changes of equality, to sort of continue her vision for a more equal society. So that's really been on my mind as I think about the election. And some ways I try to like think about the forest through the trees, I guess. Mm. I mean, I I always think a lot about how having children is an act of hope. I think a lot about how my dreams for what the things that I want in our society, I have I kind of always known that they're probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It doesn't make the work any less valuable, right? So I think about I do the work because I think that they might be possible during their lifetime. And I'll admit, like in the last few days, I've been thinking maybe it won't be possible in their lifetime, right? Or like that feels like it's a continually deferred. But I think that that's the way that I find hope, which is that there's a legacy, right? The things that we do matter in this lifetime, not because we they we do them in our lifetime. When if, especially if we're talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's like what happens after, what the work we do creates down the line. Something else that I've been thinking about is singular and extraordinary as she was. I cannot help but to also think about how many women of her generation never got to live up to their true intellectual potential because of sexism and the social forces and how many doors were slammed shut for them. And, you know, part of the American myths are that, see, if if Ruth Bader Ginsburg can make it to the Supreme Court, see, anybody can do it. Like, look at all she overcame. But I feel like we have to turn that on its head instead of saying, like, isn't it amazing? Like, anybody can do it. Like, think of the thousands or tens of thousands of extremely talented women or other marginalized groups of people who never got a chance because so many doors were slammed in their face. And, like, I just, you know, I think a lot about that with our work right now and how so many women are being forced out of the workplace right now. And, you know, back to your earlier points about how we're potentially entering a time where we're just not going to hear from mothers. And thinking about, you know, at this moment, all that can be lost, all those achievements, all that brilliance, all those contributions to society, you know, that they can all be lost at this moment when we're also losing her is very poignant because she fought she fought so hard to make it possible for us to be doing what we're doing. And so... I just think that thinking about not just the extraordinary ones, but the ordinary ones who don't get the headlines Mm -hmm. is so important. One thing that I was thinking about is, so we have a really great children's book called I Dissent. Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark. Mm. And I was thinking, especially in terms of stories of the double shift and stories of mothers, one thing I learned from that book is that you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had that chance and opportunity to be great because of her mother, Celia Bader. She lost her mother when she was a senior in high school. Yeah. But her mother had raised her to to think that she should occupy space. And her wish was that she went to college and she had saved money. Yeah. 
for that. So, like, it's the directly the work of a mother, yeah. too, that made that possible. And I think that that's what the double shift is about, too, to talk about, you know, how mothers contribute to society. And that's, you know, individual in, in raising a child, as well as pushing for, you know, better policy and um, and the communities that that would allow all of us to thrive. Right. Yeah, definitely. And just doing this during the election, I, one of the things that I think about is how no matter what happens, I'm going to need to process. Yes, right? processing. And, <laughs> and to kind of, well, to bring it full circle to what I was saying earlier about why I'm doing this, you know, it feels important to have, a, I feel really fortunate to have a place to process this, a space that is not just with my inner circle of people right, who I can just, you know, sob with if that's what's necessary, right? You know, but with people who are thinking about the same issues, who care about the same things, but but bring a different perspective. Like, again, always thinking about a way forward. And that's what I think, you know, the double shift community is. So the idea of being able to process that in this space feels feels good and it's something that feels safe. I feel like I'll be held at this future date, whatever it is that's happening. Um, and, you know, whatever the results are, we're going to need everyone's best intentions and ideas and energy to make a better world. That's the work. That is our work. Co-host Angela Garbez will be joining me every other Wednesday until Thanksgiving. Next up, while the childcare crisis in America feels so huge and unsolvable, we'll explore a local effort in Portland, Oregon that could make a real difference. Universal preschool has always been a large priority for me, even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit. And it became abundantly clear that our already broken childcare system was crumbling. And the only way to prevent that would be to have a universal system. And since we feel it's more important than ever to be hearing from many different mothers, double shifters, we want to hear from you. Has your career or earnings gone through a big change since the pandemic started? How are you adjusting to that financially? Is it affecting your self-esteem or identity? Write us or send us a voice memo about this. Please include your first name, your location, and your story. And we may use it for an upcoming episode. You can record a message using the voice memo app on your phone and email it to us at askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. That's askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. And we'll also put these instructions in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed that primal scream of fuck clip and would like to hear our unfiltered COVID life series from me and senior producer Rachel McCarthy and other great bonus content tied to our episodes, become a member of The Double Shift. It starts at $5 a month, and it's truly the most important way you can support the show. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host this season is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music is by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shreppel. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson, Eric Newsom, and Lauren Smith-Brody. 
We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and Acton Family Giving. And you, our members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift.